Thanks. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. We'll read together there in just a moment. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. I want to add my thank you to, uh, to those who've served in the military. I'm grateful for you. And one of the things I love about living in this area is this connection we can have, civilians and military. And we're just, it's an opportunity for us to say thank you. And we thank you for all of you who have served or uh, will serve in the future. Well, uh, oh, one other item of business, I guess, before I open the text. Um, so our fiscal year ends in the end of June. So that just ended. And I don't guess I have to tell you, it's been a difficult year. You probably were aware of that. But God's blessed their church in so many ways. We have generous people here. And so we, uh, our budget is, uh, for this last year, was $3.62 million. And then, of course, on top of that, the K-12 schools budget. And then on top of that, the Creation Corner preschool budget. And this year, despite all the difficulties, we met our budget and exceeded it by $164,000. Is that not amazing? And, and just, uh, it's just uh, the kind of thing I, I could have never imagined as we faced the circumstances we faced. And I want to thank you. I want to do my part. You do your part. But that's together. God's called us to minister, make a difference here locally and to the ends of the earth. And I'm glad we can do that together. And I just want to say thank you again. I'm grateful for FBCO. Well, let's open our text uh, the Bible's to, to Second Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to read three verses there. Let's start in verse 12, and we're going to really focus on verse 14. The Bible says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people and my people who bear my name, humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Well, this passage is written at a really critical time in the history of Israel. If you know a little of the story of, his, of the history of Israel, you may remember there was a tabernacle for a long time that represented the presence of God. It was a, it was a tent, in effect, the tent of meeting, sometimes called. And then there was finally, and this is the setting when the temple is built, the long-lasting structure that would be built there in Jerusalem. And Solomon was the man who was responsible for the building. You may remember his father David had the idea, and God put it on the responsibility for his son, and, and they built the temple, and now they're dedicating it. That's what's happening in this story. And at this critical moment, God really speaks to Solomon and to the people of Israel. And may I say to us, he gives us this word for a reason. It's for us. And he says, he talks about what he wants from his people and what he's going to do for his people in response. So let's just note a couple of principles. I'd encourage you to write down a couple of phrases. And if you're watching online, you can write these things down as well. Write this phrase first, what God asks of his followers. Let's just note what God asks of his followers. God asks things of us. In our membership class, we um, I'll, I'll, I talk about what we expect from members of FBC O'Fallon. We, we say every church has expectations. We just want you to know right up front what we expect, what we think you ought to do, and how you ought to be living missionally and that sort of thing. And God, of course, has expectations for those who follow him, and he tells us right up front. And in this passage, I'm going to use four words to describe what God asks of his followers, both long ago and what God asks of us now in this day as well. 
So if you're writing these down, would you write the first word humility? Just write that word humility. We've almost, by the way, lost sight of what humility means as a people. We've almost lost sight of it because we use the humility. The only time we use it is if someone's getting an award. I'm humbled by the award as though that made us humble. Of course, that's more likely to make us proud. But the Bible says here, if my people who bear my name humble themselves, if they'll humble themselves. So God is speaking to his followers, those who bear his name, and he says first thing to them, I want you to, I want you to humble yourselves. I want you to humble yourselves. So what does humility mean? Well, it means a few things. It means first we recognize our need for God. If you think you're okay without God, you'll never face humility. It's recognizing our need for God. Secondly, it's recognizing our own weakness. If we think we're strong, we don't need God, the Bible tells us that's when we're really weak because we don't depend upon Him. It's recognizing our need for God. It's recognizing our own weakness. And it's also choosing humility. Notice the Bible says, humble themselves. Or if we could personalize it, humble yourself. God can certainly humble us, of course. But God asks us, commands us to humble ourselves. We have a responsibility to recognize our need for God. We have a responsibility to see our own personal weaknesses. And therefore, we have the responsibility to choose humility. There is an old song. Some of you won't know this. It's an old song. And it went some, I'm not going to sing it, but it went something like, the words were like this. It's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Do any of you remember that? I think it's a Justin Bieber song. I'm pretty sure it's a, I'm just, I don't, it's not a Justin Bieber song. I'm just, it's hard to be humble when you're, per, but, but Bieber could have done it. He could have done a great job with it. I'm just telling you, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And we sort of laugh at that because it's kind of poking fun at this idea. But may I say, the truth is many people live as though I don't need God because I'm perfect in every way. And listen, if you are perfect in every way, fine, have at it. Just fill yourself with pride. But the Bible says we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need the Lord desperately. We're weak in our own, in our own abilities, and we therefore need the Lord. And if you want real strength in life, it starts by recognizing how weak you really are, how much you need God, and choosing to be humble, choosing to depend upon the Lord and not upon yourself. And we have much to be humble about. We have much to be humble about. Now, there's a second word I'd like you to write down. Would you write the word prayer? So God asks of us humility, recognize our need for him, but he also calls us to prayer. If my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray. Prayer is at its heart talking with God. That's really at its heart. It's talking to the Lord. And God calls us to prayer. He loves for us to pray. He teaches us to pray. And while I don't understand everything there is to understand about prayer, I will say this. God responds to our prayers in a way that he would not otherwise respond. God responds to our prayers in a way that he would not otherwise respond. He could do everything without us praying at all, but God calls us to pray, invites us to pray, teaches us to pray, loves for us to pray, and he responds to our prayers in a way that he would not otherwise respond. In fact, in verse 12, the Bible says, God said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and then he went from there. I've heard your prayer, and then in response to that prayer, he talks to his followers about what he expects of them and what he offers to them. Charles Spurgeon was a famous 
uh, preacher of the 1800s in London. And he used to call the prayer room at their church the boiler room. And he'd love to show people the boiler room. In the, in the days long ago, the boiler room is, of course, you think of that as the place where the heat is provided in a cold winter day. And he was saying, in effect, that's the place. You want to know where the heat of our church is? He said, it's the prayer room. You want to know where the strength, where the power is? It's the, it's the prayer room. And in many ways in our lives, the strength of your life will be determined by your willingness to pray. The strength of our church is determined in many ways by our willingness to pray. Your family, your personal life determined by your prayer. And God calls us to pray, teaches us to pray, and responds to our prayers. And he asks of his followers that we pray. The third thing he asks, would you write this word, write the word seeking or seek. The Bible says, if my people who bear my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face. So God in heaven wants you to know him. If you don't know God, it's not because God is not willing to be known by you. He's given us his word. He teaches us his truth. He teaches us right from wrong and tells us who he is. And not only does he want us to know him, but God calls us to seek him. And he wants us, those of us who know him, to seek his face. To seek his face. It's one of the reasons we talk so often about a devotional time with God. God wants us to spend time with him. And if you are busy, and I don't doubt you're busy. Some of you are, have really busy jobs and schedules, and some of you just have a busy life. And, you know, who's going to play the video games if you don't play them? Or, you know, who's going to watch the ball game if you don't watch it? But if you don't have time for the Lord, if you don't have time for a devotional life, your life is not in the balance that God wants it to be. May I say that as bluntly as I can? Time alone with God cannot be replaced by anything else. And while I love that we can worship together, how thankful I am for the freedom we have to do this. You cannot replace the hour of worship and the hour of a Bible study, a life group class, with, with that great need. You can't, it's not enough just to have that, but we need time alone with the Lord. And so we say, day by day, take personal responsibility for your growth. Read God's Word for yourself. Read through the New Testament for yourself. Read it over and over. Get to know what God has to say. Spend time with Him in prayer. And it's very easy for us to just sort of depend upon some time we spent with God long ago. Maybe some of you who grew up in church, the danger is you'll say, you know, I learned some things about God as though that's the end, as though I've learned everything I needed to learn when God is calling us to seek His face. And that's a day-by-day -day occurrence for us, an over-and-over -over response to God. We're going to seek the Lord. We're not going to just have spent time with him long ago or, or have given our life to him one time long ago, but day by day to seek the face of the Lord. And God wants you to know about him. And God wants you to know him. He wants you to know what the Bible says, and he wants a close personal relationship with you. And so he says to those who would follow him, here's what I'm asking of you. You, you seek my face. It's not that I'm unwilling for you to know me. I want you to know me, but you're going to have to do your part. And you're going to have to read the Bible for yourself. You're going to have to dig in some for yourself. You're going to have to spend time with me, seeking me and knowing me and building that intimacy. And there's no replacement for time alone with God. Now, there's a fourth word I want you to write down, and it's the word repentance. Repentance. The Bible says, if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways... 
Let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not feeling sorry. It's not feeling sorry for something. You can feel sorry for something and not repent. You can feel sorry, there are many people who do, feel sorry for doing the wrong thing, and they just continue to do it over and over and over again. A lot of people who feel sorry, they don't like the circumstances they are in, but they continue in those circumstances. They don't like what they've done, but they continue to do it. It's not just feeling sorry. It's not, it's not saying, if, if you were hurt by what I did, I apologize. There are many non-apology apologies. If you were hurt by what I did, you know, it's on you if you were hurt. No, repentance is something deeper than that. Let's just note three words that will help us to understand repentance, what the Bible teaches about repentance. The first, the first word is the word honesty. Honesty is where we call sin by its name. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 14. And turn from their evil ways. God didn't mind hurting your feeling there, apparently. He didn't mind being really blunt there. He says, turn from their evil ways. God calls sin by its name. He doesn't ignore it or redefine it or run from it or pretend it away. He said, turn from evil. Can I just tell you, while some sin has greater effect in the lives of people or affects more people than others, every sin, may I say, every sin is an affront against the holy God. Every sin. Every sin is worthy of the judgment of God. Every sin. Every sin is evil. If I could be as blunt as God is, as blunt as the Bible is about this. Now God does that because he knows you'll never find repentance until you're honest about the nature of sin. And so if you're saying, that's not really sin, it's no big deal, it doesn't really matter, then you're defining it in a way that God doesn't. But when you repent, you're being honest about the nature of sin. You're calling sin what God calls it. God calls it sin, and you're agreeing with God in repentance. The second word I'd have you write down is the word ownership. Ownership is where you take responsibility. The Bible says, turn from their evil ways. It's not, it's not the responsibility of someone else. It's owning it. Or if we could personalize it, we would say, when I turn from my evil ways. It's taking responsibility. It's my evil ways. It's my responsibility. It's not blaming it on others. I had a great phrase when I was young that really absolved me from every responsibility. My, two of my three brothers were here last week, and they only came to one of the two worship services. And I just tell you, they needed both of them. I don't know why they only came to one. They really needed me to preach to them many, many times. But the, I used to say to the, uh, sometimes when, like, if we're getting in trouble and my like my dad was getting after me for something, I would say, this is the phrase that I'd use that helped many, many times to explain to my dad why I did what I did. I said, he started it. And that meant everything that, that followed was not really my fault. He started it. So did I punch him? Yeah, but he started it. Did I yell at him? Yes, but... He started it. And so, for some reason, my dad did not understand the logic of this, that I could not be held responsible 
for anything that happened after that, he started it. Everything after that was okay. I could do whatever I wanted because I was not responsible because he started it. And yet God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, says to us, if you want to repent, you have to take responsibility. Now let me say it like this. You are not responsible for the sins of others. You're not responsible for the sins of others. If your parents sinned against you, that's on them. If your children sinned against you, that's on them. If your ex sinned against you, that's on him or her. You're not responsible for the sins of others, but you are responsible for your response. Did you know that? You can't say to God, well, they started it. You know, I could, I mean, I'm not responsible because they did wrong, and because they did wrong, I can do wrong. Repentance says, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to call sin by its name. I'm going to say about sin what God says about it, and I'm going to take ownership. I'm responsible for my actions, not theirs, but I am responsible for my actions and my choices, and I'm going to own that. And then repentance is honest, honesty and ownership, and then change. And don't leave this word out, change. The Bible says, and turn from their evil ways. Turn from their evil ways. It's not saying continue down the same path. It's saying change. Now, I have not served in the military, but I saw Gomer Pyle on television when I was a young boy. So I think I know everything there is to know about the military because of that. And I saw on the Gomer Pyle, that's an old show, and they would, they would march. I don't know if the military guys still, I don't see the Air Force guys marching a lot for some reason. Maybe you do in the quiet of the, you know, the uh, base there or something, and I don't see it. But if you're, if you're marching along, and then you say, they do about face, you see how I, I know the phrase even. That's how insider I am in this military world. You're walking one way, and about face means you go the other way. Am I right about this? Am I right? I should be getting a government retirement right now because I understand these sorts of things. And that's what repentance is. It's an about face. It's saying, I'm not just feeling sorry for it. I'm not just aware of it, but I am changing the direction that I'm going. And so God, I'm going to be honest about it. What you say is wrong. I agree with you. It's wrong. And I'm going to own it. I'm not blaming it on anyone else. And I'm going to change direction and go your way instead of my way, the right way instead of the wrong way. And so if my struggle is with lust, I'm not saying, you know, that's just the way I am and it's not that big a deal anyway or whatever else we would do to justify it. I say, I'm going to change. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to keep that channel any longer. And those magazines aren't going to be in my home. And, and I'm going to give that password to someone else. I'm going to... Repentance matters deeply to God because sin matters deeply to God and because he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And because God wants what's best for you, he says, here's what I want from you. I want humility. I want you to pray. I want you to seek my face. And I want you to turn from your evil ways to repent. And when we do that, the Bible tells us God responds to this. So let's look at what God offers to his followers. Would you look at that second phrase, what God offers to his followers? The Bible says, if my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then, notice there's a part A, that's our responsibility, what God asks of us, and then, then all that follows is what God is offering to us, to those who follow him. Three things. The first word I want you to write down is the word attention. God says, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will hear from heaven. In many ways, America is ignoring God. I'm saying the obvious here. 
in many ways, America is ignoring God. We're going our own way. We're not listening to what God says in his word. We've forgotten who God is. In many ways, our culture is going the wrong way. But can I also note, in many ways, Christians are ignoring God. Those who name his name are ignoring God. Now, it's one thing for our world to ignore God, but for those who name the name of Christ to ignore him. And we are so surprised that we don't have the attention of heaven, that God doesn't respond as we want him to respond. I finished not long ago a biography of Benjamin Franklin. I said a few weeks ago how I appreciated him more than I admired him. He's hard to admire. He didn't always do the right thing, but you could appreciate his talent and ability and and, um, skills. But there are some things about him that I found especially frustrating. He ignored his family. I mean, just ignored his family. And sometimes at the most critical moments, ignored his wife as she was dying for extended years far beyond what his responsibilities were. Ignored his children, grandchildren, ignored them terribly. And he lectured them incessantly about family life, about what they should do, about how they should act, and how their family... It is so frustrating to watch this man ignore his own family and lecture his family about what they should do. And in many ways, those of us who name the name of the Lord will ignore God and then lecture him about how he ought to be paying more attention to what we want from him and what we expect him to do and how we expect him to answer our prayers as we want them answered in the timing we expect from him. And God in heaven is saying, don't forget the then. Humility and prayer and seeking God and repentance. And then I will hear from heaven. God wants us to know him, but he wants us to seek him. Now, there's a second word I want you to write down. Would you write down the word forgiveness? Forgiveness. God offers to his followers forgiveness. The Bible says, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin. Forgive their sin. So why does God offer forgiveness? Sometimes I struggle to understand why, except that I know God loves. I don't understand why God loves as he does, but God loves. And he loves you. I don't always understand why he loves me, and I sure don't understand why he loves you, but he does. And God offers his forgiveness out of his deep love. He gives his grace. But how does God offer forgiveness? I mean, if sin is such a big deal, if it carries such consequences, if it matters so much, well, how can God offer forgiveness? Can he just say, listen, I've changed my mind, and sin's not sin any longer, and doesn't matter? Of course he No, God is a holy God. So how does he forgive? Well, we see some understanding of this from the context of these verses. You may remember the Lord said in verse 12, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. So the temple had just been built and the temple represented the presence of God. And in the the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the most holy place. 
And it was the place where the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement and he would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood as a reminder that sin always carries consequences. It always leads to death. The goal of the enemy in your life is not to make your life wonderful and happy and joyful, but it is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's always the goal of the enemy. Make no mistake about that. And so there's a sacrifice. There's always sin's always leading to death. And so forgiveness came on the Day of Atonement because of the sacrifice that was made, the lamb that was slain. And the Bible says, for us, Jesus is our lamb who was slain. Jesus is the sacrifice made for us. He's the one-time sacrifice, once for all, made on our behalf. So that we don't have to go every year to the temple to make the sacrifice. But Jesus became for us the sacrifice. And he died in our place so that we can become, our body can become the temple of God. God the Holy Spirit lives in us because Jesus died for us. So God forgives us, not because he's saying sin's no big deal after all, and I've changed my mind and it doesn't matter. But because he said sin is so great, you could never pay that price. But Jesus died in your place on that cross for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much you matter to him. And on the basis of Jesus who lived the perfect life, and therefore was worthy to die the death we deserve, and who rose from the grave to conquer sin and death and give us the miracle we need. We can be forgiven. You can be forgiven of your sins. Set free. Declared righteous and holy. Adopted into God's family. Given a home in heaven. That's the great beauty of the gospel. You can be forgiven, and the Bible says God is offering that to you. Some of you today, I pray, will give your life to Christ. Maybe God brought you to this place or you're hearing this message today so that you would give your life to Christ and trust him as Savior and find forgiveness in Christ. And God offers that to you. Christ has already given his life for you. He's already provided the miracle of the resurrection for you. And this day, I'm asking you to repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ and be saved. And so the Bible tells us the word attention. God offers it to hear us from heaven. Forgiveness. He'll forgive our sins. And then the third word I want you to write down is the word restoration. Restoration. He says, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. He says, there'll come a day when there's the sky's shut and the grasshopper consumes and the pestilence comes. And that will be a way for you to see that I want your attention. But by God's power, we can overcome our problems and our past and even our broken promises. By God's power, we can overcome the problems of our lives, the problems of our nation, the problems of our past, the pains and the hurts we bring, the broken promises that we've made. And God can bring restoration. God can bring revival. God can bring new life to us. And God offers that to his followers. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our evil ways, God, then God will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So I uh, finished, I, I've been reading biographies lately, and I finished a biography recently on a guy named uh, General George Marshall. Those of you who are military history guys may remember Marshall. Marshall uh, fought in World War I, but he was the, the primary general, the leading general in World War II. And after that, he became the Secretary of State and then the Secretary of Defense and just lived a long career serving uh, his country, really strong organizationally, strong, you know, 
kind of in seeing the big picture of the needs of the military. Uh, so when I started reading the book, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about Marshall. I'd read books on Eisenhower, guys like that, but I just, I didn't know much. I, mean, I just knew the general story, and I decided to read this biography. 598 pages. I looked it up before, you know, we went to the end. How many pages? 598. All right. Now read the book. There's some footnotes. I'm not going to read that. And I'll just tell you, 598 pages is way too much on George Marshall. I mean, he's got some interesting parts. He, the, the history of Israel, he was the Secretary of State when Israel was um, recognized as a country. That's fascinating to me. World War II time, fascinating to me. But long periods, just tedious. I just had to work my way through it. So as I get to along the pages, you know, like 200, 300, 400, page 500, all right, 98 pages to go at page 500. And then I get to like 580, and it's, it's, it seems like there's a lot of life left in these last 18 pages. I mean, it must die suddenly or something. And then, you know, get to 590, and there's still seems like a lot to go. And 592 and 3 and 4 and 5, 596, 590, page 598, and it ends right in the middle of a sentence. And I looked at my book, and I realized they had somehow in the making of the book or something, there was, it had skipped right, all the way to uh, right in the middle of the footnotes, and it had skipped like 31 pages, 31 pages. Now, I didn't care enough to want to read 31 pages. I just went to Wikipedia, you know, and found out that he died. He's been, he's been dead for a long time now, in case you were wondering. But I thought, man, I, I, I mean, so the last section of his life, I, I don't know. And can I say, the last pages of the book of your life have not been written yet. They haven't been written yet. However many pages are left, hundreds of pages or just a few. They haven't been written yet. And what happens in the pages of your life that have not yet been written will be determined in large measure by what you do with what God asks of his followers and how that leads to what God offers to you. What happens with the future of our nation? I don't know how many pages are left in the history of our nation. I don't know what pages have not yet been finished on the history of our nation. But as we respond to what God asks of us and what God wants for us, a lot, a lot of what will be written will be determined by those things. What happens to our church? How many pages God has left in the book of our church life will be determined by how do we respond to what we know God offers of us, to us, and what he asks of us and then offers to us. And some of you are here because God in heaven has said, I, I want you to know what I want for you. I'm asking of you this. I'm asking of you to humble yourself, not, not to think you can do it without me, but to realize when you're weak, that's when you're strong because that's when you see your need for me. To pray, not just to talk about prayer, but to pray, to spend time with me. And I will respond in ways that I would not otherwise respond because of your prayers. And to seek my face, to dig into the word for yourself and to meet in small groups where you ask some questions together and to seek the face of God and to know, to know him and his purposes and plans. And to repent, turn from the things that are wrong, no matter what the world may say, no matter how much you may justify it, but to repent so that, so that I will hear from heaven 
and I'll forgive your sin and I'll heal your land. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we pray, if you're, if you're lost, maybe you're here today, maybe you're hearing this today because the Lord in heaven is reminding you, you need to be saved. You need Christ as Savior. Would you today repent of your sin? Place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you and receive him as Savior. Right where you are today, you can be saved. Christ died for you. Christ rose from the grave for you. And if you'll trust him, he'll save you. But Christian, I'm going to say a word to you, those of you who name his name. If my people who bear my name humble themselves, is that for you? Will you humble yourself, recognize your need for God? Pray. Is that for you? Is God reminding you that he wants to talk to you in prayer? To seek my, and seek my face. We just say, God, I want to seek your face. I want to do my part to know you intimately and closely and turn from your evil ways. God, is there something in my life that you're saying, God, I want, I, I want to change that in your life. I want to change that in your behavior. I want to change how you're thinking. Then I will heal, hear from heaven. Then I will forgive your sin. And then I will heal your land. Would you say yes to him? Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the truth that you teach us. Thank you for this word from your word to our hearts, to our lives. Help us to live it out. Would you draw people to yourself? Help us to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.